Well, the legislature did go into the wee hours this morning on its lame duck session, but they didn't get almost anything done. And what they did get done raises some serious questions about their motives. We'll be talking about it all on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer on this Friday. I am Chris Quinn. I am here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Chris Ronowski, and Jane Cahoon, who had to get up very early today to capture <laughs> that wee hour stuff to put it in the capital letter. I hope you're not too groggy. I, I would much prefer to get up early like I did today than to be Jeremy Pelzer, one of our state house people who was up until after 3 a.m. <laughs> uh, covering all of this. So bravo, Jeremy. Yeah, bravo. They did a nice job. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but I want to go into something else first. So let's begin. How is Congressman Jim Jordan putting Ohio back in the spotlight for nonsense with his supportive efforts to subvert the voters and invalidate the election of Joe Biden as president? Laura Johnston, this is really an outrage if when you think about it. He is an elected U.S. congressman, a member of a pretty elite club, and he is peddling complete fiction to undo what the voters have done. What's the latest on what he's up to? Yeah, you don't ever expect Jim Jordan to act like a rational, like, human being, do you? <laughs> Jordan went on TV yesterday two times to talk about his plans to participate in this January 6th effort on the House of Representatives floor to question whether Biden should be president. Um, January 6th is this joint session of Congress when the House and the Senate meet to count and certify electoral college votes. And for this challenge to be effective, you need a member of the House and a member of the Senate to submit objections in writing. So far, no one in the Senate has stepped forward to do so. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said that would be counterproductive, but that's not going to stop Jordan. He described January 6th as the, quote, ultimate date of significance in the election, argued that a floor debate over the election results would be both good and healthy. And I love what Jordan told Fox News, like he's crusading for truth. He said, all we can do is bring information forward for the American people. Okay, there, Chris, I teed it up for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what, what's pathetic about this is he's, he's peddling the thing that, hey, more than a third of the country believes that this election was rigged. And the only reason anybody believes that is that, one, they're not using their brains because there's no evidence for it. But two, he and his cronies keep telling them that. I mean, when you have Congress people saying, Joe Biden didn't win this election. It was stolen. Look at the statistics. There are people that are not going to bring independent thought to it that are going to go, yeah, look what he said. But and then to use that as your justification for trying to steal the vote from the American voters, it's shameful. And he knows it's a lie. He knows it's not true. This is why almost nobody believes him about the sex scandal at OSU, where he said, I didn't know what was going on. He doesn't tell the truth. The, the reason we're talking about this first is because this is an assault on our system of government. I also am a little bit surprised that you don't have Republican pundits and columnists being outraged by this, you know, saying, let the system play out, let the system play out. I'm sure there were people in the Nazi party in the 30s that were, were outraged by what was going on and said, let the system play out. Where are they? I mean, all right. This- I may have I may have to step in here. You're kind of like, I, I know this is rare. Like, I rarely have to ring you in the man. You have really. Wow. I okay, Chris Rodowski, tee it up for you. Well, I, I think what's troublesome about this is that Donald Trump lost this election by, I think, what is it, the widest popular vote margin in, I think, American history. And and what what these people in Congress are doing, and, and 
you know, in this last ditch effort is they're really trying to subvert the will of the American voters. And I don't think what GOP voters understand is that if you attempt to do this to the Democrats, there's a point in history down the road where Democrats might try to do this to you and you may not have any leg to stand on. And so I think that's what's troubling. I think I think, you know, of all of the the dirty dirty things that we have seen in the in the outcome and the most like boring predictable bs that we've had to to deal with like that we could see coming from a mile away this one to me is is the most insulting because it really does try to snatch away the power of the vote and right. and, and 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 it's and it's it's insulting and as a as a voter as, and look, as somebody who who wouldn't spit on Jim Jordan if he was on fire, I have to say, like <laughs> this this and, one and, goes too far, and it's embarrassing because we live in Ohio, and he's now more and more the face of Ohio. This kind of monstrous man who doesn't care about truth, doesn't care about democracy. It's all about I'm gonna I'm, I'm blindly loyal to probably the most dishonest president in history, and I'm going to do whatever I can to keep men. And look, if this is successful, our government is gone. We will have moved into authoritarian government. This is not okay. I Look, I've I, just about every, every analysis of this issue says that this will not be successful, that there's no way that it will succeed. But where it succeeds is, again, it, it is, is damaging the credibility of our elections. It is... It is hurting people's faith in this process. You know, I have a lot of friends who are cynical, like, you know, oh, our votes don't matter. And, oh, you know, it's the electoral college. You know, it's the, you know, one vote doesn't count. You know, it really, it, it really confirms that cynical idea that people have about elections. And, and, and that sucks like that. I mean, there's no other way to put it. it, but, it, it really, also, but Chris, it all, I also think it points out. All of the people that are standing mute. You know, Mike DeWine talked to us two days ago and he said that all of the institutions prove our system work. But Mike DeWine, an honest guy, he should be calling this out. He should be saying that what what Jim Jordan is pulling here seeks to undermine what you just said, the belief in the voting system. I'm stunned that there aren't people standing up saying, stop it. I, I Even Mitch McConnell has stood up to say, stop it. Where are the rest saying, Jim Jordan, go away. You're making noise and you got nothing to stand on. Anyway, wanted to talk about that because even though you say it has no chance of happening, our guy, our congressman is in it. And I'm ashamed to say that in the past, not recently, in the past, our editorial board endorsed this guy. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Ohio lawmakers did not get nearly as much done in their lame duck session as they wanted, but they did take yet another shot at whittling back the availability of abortions in this state. Jane Cahoon, how so? And what are some of the things they didn't get done? Well, first on the uh, abortion issue, they sent a ban on telemedicine abortions to the governor's desk, and presumably he will sign it because of his anti-abortion stance. Uh, it passed the House 54 to 30 with Republicans controlling that. And it would prohibit doctors from using telemedicine to to help patients with taking these two prescription drugs that in, induce abortions. And uh, it requires that doctors be physically present when, they're, when their patients take the first of the two pills, or they could be charged with a fourth degree 
felony for a first offense and a third degree felony for repeat offenses. You know, on the subject of telemedicine, a lot of people are using it now because of the coronavirus crisis. They did they don't want to to go to a doctor's office in person and the um, abortion rights supporters say this is just subjecting women who seek abortions to, you know, more danger. And it's just another way to stand in the way of a legal right to abortion. The anti-abortion groups say that, you know, they're trying to protect the health of women, that, that doctors should be present as a safeguard. So as I said, you know, it's likely DeWine will sign this. And then as for what the legislature didn't get done, well, let me start here. They had this marathon session that lasted well into the wee hours of of this morning, but they have not held final votes on a number of really high profile things, uh, including the capital budget and then what to do about your favorite subject, Chris, the tainted House Bill 6 nuclear bailout. They're supposed to be considering this delay of those nuclear subsidies, but they haven't gotten to that point yet. And then no, there's let me, still, let, me, let me stop you. Let me yeah. tell you why not. What what is wrong with these people? <laughs> the entire state, the governor, the attorney general, everybody wants that done. What is wrong with these guys? That's their job. Why? Well, not? they suffered no consequences for not acting on it before the election. So. Yeah, I don't no, know. The only it's, consequences they get is when they get indicted by the FBI if they did something complicit. I, I just would think that because it's so overwhelmingly popular, I mean, who do they represent? Are they still in the pocket of First Energy? Is that what this is about? That the First Energy still has the power to subvert the interest of Ohioans? <laughs> this just makes no sense to me. It's such an easy one. But just I, yeah. makes it. If you weigh the headline grabbing of, say, a anti-abortion bill that, you know, you slip in under the cover of night versus people's public interest, you know, I, House Bill 6 is is very important. But I think it's important to people like us and people who are really paying attention to to this issue and, and, and people in politics. But, you know, when you when you get into these identity politics issues like abortion and gun rights and stuff like that, those are the things that really drum out votes in you know, parts of the state. That all right, all right. don't get ahead of us. We got governments coming. <laughs> no, no, just, like, just, like, I, I get it. But, right. but, but you know what I'm saying, right? I, I know important. what you're saying. I do think there's a bigger interest in HB6 than what you're saying, but you're right. I mean, that they're going for supporting the NRA and all that, and you know, all the nonsense that they play with instead of doing the public's business. Jane, what else didn't they get to? So there's something, uh, a bill that they amended to stick something in there that would allow slot machine-like devices, uh, electronic instant bingo uh, to be used by charities like fraternal organizations. They they stuck that in, uh, I think that was like an election bill or something, <laughs> but that, that hasn't gotten the final nod yet. They also have competing uh, bills legalizing uh, fireworks. And it's interesting. The Senate's version only allows fireworks from July 3rd to the 5th, while the House bill would permit it year round. So whether they're going to settle that, who knows? Although and, that, uh, that one yeah. plays into Chris's theory of headline grabbing. You legalize fireworks, <laughs> that erases everything else. Why didn't they do that one? <laughs> yeah, really, really. And as I mentioned, they got the capital budget too. A lot of people are depending on money for a lot of projects for that. Uh, so what we know is that the, the Senate's coming back today and supposedly that'll be their last day. And then the House 
is set to to reconvene next week. We're th- we think maybe Tuesday, so we're we're waiting to, for the details on that. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Did the Ohio legislature manage to pass a stand your ground bill in their late night session Thursday into Friday? And how fiery was the debate? Chris Ranowski, this is very much in line with what you've talked about previously, the headline grabbing, please the the base kind of thing. What happened with stand your ground? And, and please explain a little bit about what the difference is between current law. Right. So uh, the stand your ground law measure did pass yesterday, uh, strictly down a party line. And it it must there's a a bill in the Senate that needs to clear before it heads to Mike DeWine's desk. And if it passes, Ohio would become the 36th state uh, to no longer require what is known as a duty to retreat before using force under the existing Ohio law. Uh, people are are justified in using deadly force and self-defense so long as they're not the aggressor and they believe they're in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm and are in their home and vehicle. This amendment would remove the home and vehicle requirement, meaning that you can basically do it anywhere. Plus, what is a little shady is that they added civil protection for churches and nonprofits in case you want to, you know, bust a cap in somebody at the United Way or something, but, <laughs> I, you know, which is, you know, a, a very, you know, kind of unusual, but there, there are a lot of states that have these and, and, you know, it came down party lines and there was a, a one of the members of the house who was a Democrat, um, Stephanie House, a, a Cleveland Democrat actually brought up this issue that this does af- affect black people because they are disproportionately the target of of people who use the stand your ground defense and and she actually has some statistics to back this up i i know she didn't probably bring this up on the on the floor when when this debate was taking place but there was a there was a study done by the american bar association a few years ago that basically said that these laws lead to increases in homicide and and disproportionately affect black people if if you really want the best example you have the Trayvon Martin killing in Florida which had one of the country's first stand your ground laws you know as a state so so of course this fell down party lines and and we still have to wait to see if the senate will pick it up but but it's a really odd thing to to pass in a in a year where you had the governor the governor go on television and plead with people to plead with the legislators to to strengthen gun laws and 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 this is it, this seems like a retreat in the complete opposite direction of what the governor and you know most people with common sense believe is the the way that we need to address the growing violence that is happening all over the state not just in city well, it's also fascinating they do it this year given what's happened since the George Floyd killing that i mean there is a heightened heightened sensitivity now that these trends have developed. And I, you know, Stephanie House was great in in yeah. calling people out. And and Jane Cahoon, this time they they didn't gavel her quiet like they did last <laughs> right, time. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you know some history here, you know, she spoke up on uh, uh, this issue before in a previous uh, General Assembly, or maybe it was the same earlier. But anyway, when when Ryan Smith was the speaker and he gaveled her down and she she was trying to say you guys, like the primarily white male Republicans who control the legislature, you don't understand what happens in black communities. You don't understand the impact of this. And as I said last time, she got gaveled down. This time she didn't get gaveled down. But I think the one of the sponsors said something like, well, I have 
you know, two children of color. And she's like, well, talk to some adults, you know, who are affected by this. And so it was, it was very, very passionate. I'd also like to mention that Governor DeWine has said, you know, he has these gun reforms that he had implored the legislature to pass and they've just sat on them. And he has sent some signals that, hey, don't send me a bill like this until you deal with the gun reforms that I've proposed. Well, so let me ask you, though, then, if he gets that and he has a certain number of days to veto it, if is there going to be time for them to come back and override his veto before the next session? Because their their session closes down at the end of the year, so if he yeah, you know, this, by the time they deliver the bill to him, he's got so many days to veto it. I'd have to count like on the calendar. He might be able to veto it at the very end, but I have a feeling they're going to adjourn the general assembly, you know, and then he'll still have a chance to veto it, and then they wouldn't be able to yeah come I back. Think, I, I'm I'm pretty sure he holds the cards here. And, and he and he's unhappy. I mean, he has spoken over and over and over again. Why would anybody oppose what he's trying to do? I'm trying to increase penalties for people who use guns and felonies more than one time. So be interesting to see how that one plays out. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio lawmakers did not override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of their bill to strip his power to issue health orders. But they did successfully vote to abolish one health order in particular, Jane Cahoon, this is the height of silliness, I think, to wake up this morning and see this is what they got done. This is the priority for them laying on me. Yeah, they're they're going to uh, override the um, prohibition against county fairs reopening. So uh, as you recall, Governor DeWine, to, to prevent the spread of coronavirus, they, his administration had issued a health order that prohibits most county fair activities and limited them to just some junior fair activities with, with the participation limited to like 4-H and FFA and so forth. But the lawmakers feel, the Republican lawmakers who are in control here believe that only holding junior fairs isn't sustainable for the county fair boards and that, you know, they need to start planning for full and safe fairs for next year. And the county fairs are important activities for for our communities. They got some pushback from from Democrats, including Juanita Brandt, a state representative from, from Cleveland, who's like, you know, why are you dealing with this instead of passing bills to help Ohioans, you know, pay their rent and mortgages and and uh, deal with other problems this coronavirus has inflicted on them? Right. So they they legalize county <laughs> fairs in a plague year, but they don't undo HB6. These are guys that have their priorities. It also feels kind of toothless. I mean, these are guys that have talked about impeaching Mike DeWine and jailing him and stripping him of all his powers. And they come out of this with, we, you know, we protected county fairs. So, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Confederate flags have been down. <laughs> so what so we got to open those fairs back up. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Does any government agency in Ohio make sure that the hospitals that have the coronavirus vaccines are using them solely for people on the front lines of COVID and not for office workers, administrators, and others who don't come into contact with it? Laura Johnston, this is one that that is a little bit worrisome because we have a lot of people on the street that deal with COVID. We have 
paramedics that go into houses of people and might be bringing them to the hospital have COVID. You have a whole bunch of teachers that are worried about their exposure. So, so it's a good question to ask who is making sure that the people who need the shots are getting them. What's the answer? It's a good question to ask. And we asked it yesterday at the briefing. I don't think it's come up anytime before. And Mike DeWine had never addressed it before. But the answer is no. Ohio hospitals don't have anyone overseeing them and who they choose to give the coronavirus vaccine to. I mean, as you know, the hospitals began receiving the Pfizer vaccine this week. They started uh, vaccinating people. They each got about 975 doses, I believe. But when it comes to who's deci- you know who decides what line that those employees are in, it's it's up to the hospitals. And DeWine only said that there is a great deal of trust involved. He said, these are medical professionals. We're not sending people out to check on them in that regard. They have every incentive to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. And that is to cover the most vulnerable people. He said the state has issued guidelines and that's about it. All right. Well, let me ask you this then, because he's been talking for a week and a half. He's going to have a vaccine dashboard that gives the public information so it can be reassured. If it's not going to say classifications of people who got it, what's the point? Is it just going to say in Cuyahoga County, we vaccinated this many people? If that's the case, how's that going to reassure anybody? I mean, I thought we were going to get data that says, you know, in, in certain places, they've done this many doctors, this many nurses, this many paramedics, eventually this many teachers. And, you know, but if there's if there's nobody checking, what's that going to even show? Just raw numbers of vaccines given out? Who cares? Maybe maybe it's going to show how, which hospitals got how many. I mean, the Moderna va- vaccine is expected next week at a couple of Cuyahoga County hospitals. Um, maybe it'll show the nursing homes that are getting it. Because as DeWine said, that was not a priority issue at this point. That was a scheduling issue. And that it was up to the four pharmacy companies to contact the nursing homes and get them on a schedule. So like, you know, it just depends kind of on luck of the draw there. So maybe it'll show which nursing homes, but you're right. I mean, that's a really important question for Ohioans to be able to have answered, like who in their community, what frontline workers are safe? And I don't know that we're going to know the answer to that. Well, and we've been talking for months about how people are going to want transparency on this or they're not going to trust. I mean, the public health officials have lied to us a bunch of times on COVID. This is a way of of renewing their faith, but it, it sounds like not at all. Jane Cahoon, when Rich Exner gets back from his well-deserved break, we're going to have to have him look at whatever's on that dashboard and do an analysis about whether it's useful or not, because I can't imagine what's going to be on there that we're going to care much about. Yes, sir. okay you're listening to this week in the cle we're a little punchy we've been up since 4 30 <laughs> cleveland.com launched a public service project thursday that will continue into late winter or spring to help people cope with the incredible stresses and mental health issues being caused by the pandemic chris ranowski you're you're part of the team working on this project what's the thinking behind it Right. So Coping Through COVID is a series that we launched this week that will sort of explore the struggles that people are having through, you know, mental health struggles that people are going to be that have they have had during this pandemic. You know, we've we've been locked down and and separated from our loved ones for for months on end here. And and mental health experts are worrying that this isolation and depression and all of this anxiety caused by the pandemic is going to have a lot of long-term effects on people. And so we're going to be talking to people about this. We're going to be exploring deeply a lot of issues that 
are related to mental health and, you know, trauma response and, and all of the things that, you know, people sort of need to know and understand, you know, I'm at the point now where I feel like if you haven't had a, a minor breakdown through this, there's, there's, there's actually something, <laughs> something wrong with you because I, you know, I mean, I, you know, early on, I, I think we all sort of were dealing with this great big unknown thing. And, and, you know, I, and I think we've all, I think we can all attest to having something personally happen to us during this. It has just been sort of brain breaking. And, and so, you know, hopefully through this, we'll be able to get people in touch with, their resources and get them to understand that what they're struggling through is, is, you know, not necessarily unique and that, and that they're not alone in, in how they feel and, 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 and helping them sort of accept that it's not a bad thing to, to have days like that. And, and that there is light on the other side of all of this because it's, it's hard. And, and, and trust me, there are people that are struggling a lot more than you, you know, than we are right now who through things like joblessness and, and losing parents and losing family. I mean, it's been difficult. And I, and I hope, I hope, I hope through this, we help folks. All right. I, I mentioned it launched on cleveland.com yesterday. It will also begin appearing in The Plain Dealer on Sunday. Th- this series is aimed at this acute phase where people are dealing with stresses right now. We, we're also talking about extending this for, for the long term because there are a lot of, of mental health professionals now predicting that this will impact people for five and ten years the way the depression did and some other traumatic things in history uh, and the idea is, how do you identify the vulnerable populations to that? How do you get them treatment before homelessness and and drug addiction rises? Because the predictions are in the next five and 10 years, the trauma from this will be bad. Also, how does it affect children that, right. that they're, they're absorbing this anxiety from their parents? How, how will this affect them and their relationships going forward? So we're also talking about that. But in this immediate phase, it's you know, how do you deal with all the issues you discussed, Chris, mourning and, and loss and isolation? So look for this stuff and we will keep going. We're hoping people will come back to us to talk and share their stories about how they coped and, and what they're going through. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio executions are on hold with no sign of resuming. So this does not have a lot of immediate effect. But what capital punishment law did Ohio legislators pass on Thursday? Jane Cahoon, this was actually something they did that has merit, unlike other things they did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is interesting. They gave final approval to legislation prohibiting executions of of killers who have a serious mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But as you said, there's, there's already an unofficial moratorium on executions because the state can't acquire the necessary drugs for lethal injection. So Governor DeWine has said that there won't be any more executions until lawmakers come up with some sort of alternative method, which they also haven't done and they won't be doing in the lame duck. But uh, under this bill, people who are convicted of aggravated murder could not be sentenced to death if they're diagnosed with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, and delusional disorder. And then, you know, there's some other requirements um, of that. And But anybody who escapes the death penalty because of a serious mental illness has to be sentenced to life in prison without parole. The Senate added some language to that effect. This is something anti-death penalty groups have been pushing for, saying it's morally wrong to execute people who have impaired reasoning and judgment skills and, and don't realize what what they've done is wrong. Uh, It was opposed by Attorney General Dave Yost, 
uh, and the prosecutors who said, you know, Ohio law already requires courts to consider a defendant's mental state. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, the legislature went long, so we will too. Let's do one more. Do we finally have some data that shows how the coronavirus has been spreading this fall, even if the data is not from Ohio? Laura Johnson, we have talked about this over and over and over again. People telling us it spreads in the home, it spreads in restaurants, and nobody has any data to show it. But lo and behold, coming from elsewhere in the country is some data that shows it, and it's enlightening. What is it? Yeah, two data sets from uh, Washington, D.C. show the activities that people with COVID-19 participated in during their two-week exposure periods and also where outbreaks occurred. So the study, uh, and it's on the D.C. dashboard, if anybody wants to go check it out, showed that 16, 16.1% of people who later tested positive for COVID-19 had dined out at a restaurant It also found that travel was about the same, 16.4%, social events, 29.4%, and work at 32.3%. But the the dining out is way above other activities like going to the gym, which was 0.6%, and uh, faith events at 3%. So obviously, you cannot use this data to prove that people are catching the coronavirus at restaurants. And it does not break down between bars and restaurants or, you know, restaurants with plexiglass dividers or hand sanitizing station. But it does give you some pause and and show some correlation. All right. I I mean, what a shock, right? You go into an (laughs) enclosed space, you take your mask off and you get the coronavirus. Uh, Chris Warnowski, with with the knowledge that we're running over time, uh, this plays plays (laughs) right into what you've been saying for weeks and months about common sense, right? I mean, does, does this surprise you at all that the data shows it's happening at restaurants? No, I mean, I just... Like again, I don't know why we have to even talk about this anymore, and and why we keep dodging this. Like I understand that 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 you know the the restaurant lobby is is a powerful one, but but you know I, I think at some point you have to weigh the the tremendous risk of having a bunch of people inside, and with the winter coming, you're with winter here, looking outside right now. You know, I I think the the urgency to address this even even grows because people aren't going to be able to dine outside on the sidewalk anymore. So, Except you know, Laura Johnson's backyard because she's going to have the propane <laughs> heater running. <laughs> Even oh. if it's 12 degrees outside. Was that laugh um, you inviting us all over? Is that, That's uh, right. Any, anyone's welcome. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. That's not good. You'll get coronavirus. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've gone long. Great conversation. Thanks as always. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Monday to do our final four episodes of the year. Yes, we are going to take the holidays off. 